Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Amen. It's absolutely true. There's nothing more beautiful or powerful than the testimony of what our God can do and has done and will do in our lives. And it's that power uh, that John refers to that can cure anything, that can overcome anything that we get to discuss and study this morning as we come uh, to the end of the book of Ephesians and to the end of our study uh, that we've called Repurposed. And so, uh, like you, I've sat in these rows each and every Sunday and heard uh, some great messages through the book of Ephesians that normally will start with some sort of a transitional word. There'll be a reference to either something like, therefore, or for this reason. And each week we've looked at a, a passage of scripture, but also being mindful of what came before it that gives us instruction into what's said. And today's no different. If you look at Ephesians chapter six, we're gonna begin in verse 10 with the word finally. If you put yourself in the mindset of Paul as he penned this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have Paul sitting down and he's writing this letter in the same way you or I would with a number of things he wants to communicate to the church at Ephesus. And he gets to the end and like any good conclusion, though there'll be some new content, he also wants to pull a number of threads all the way through from the beginning to the end. And so he says, finally, some manuscripts will say henceforward or in the remaining time. And Paul's hope in this passage, and hopefully as we study it, it'll come to light for us, is that Paul is saying there are some things that though Jesus' work on the cross is complete, though sin and death have been defeated, until Jesus returns, there are some things we need to be mindful of because there's still a battle that is raging. And so his words to us, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Orinoco say this, beginning in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power. You see, throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has set forth the standard that God has set for our relationship with God, for our relationship with our Savior, for our relationship with one another, for our relationship with those that don't know Jesus. Even last week, for some of those most personal, intimate relationships that we enjoy with our spouses, with our children, with our bosses, we have these relationships. There's a standard that's been set and yet there's this challenge because Satan wants to destroy those. It's as though Paul is saying, though peace has been made through Christ, it'll only really be enjoyed in the midst of struggle until Jesus returns. And so his command to us is simple, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Want to know the point of the sermon? He just gave it to us in the very first sentence. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. This strength is not a one-time thing. This isn't a one-shot inoculation. This is an ongoing thing. We are continually strengthened. How? Well, that little two-letter word in. In the Lord and in his mighty power. See, he could have written, be strong by the Lord and by his mighty power, as though it's something just done to us but we understand as repurposed people that there's a relationship here, that we are in the Lord. It's not just by him, but it's with him that we do things. And so there's this relationship in the Lord and in his 
mighty power. One of those threads that Paul's pulling all the way through now is mighty power. In Ephesians chapter one, he says it's that power, that very same power that rose Jesus from the dead. What gives us the ability to stand strong? It's the mighty power of our heavenly father who worked even over death and the grave. And so we have confidence as believers that the same power that conquered the grave lives in us and empowers us and gives us the ability to stand as repurposed people. So how do we do it? How do we stand strong? I believe Paul gives us a real simple uh, study here of how we do that by simply understanding this, that we stand strong when we understand our real battle and our real weapons. So let's start with our real battle, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 for that. Uh, And and I'll tell you what it's going to say here real quick. This is going to be a battle about spiritual warfare. And I don't know what your reaction is to this discussion of spiritual warfare. I don't know if it makes you uncomfortable, if you're intrigued by it, if you believe it, if you don't believe it. And so I just want to start by simply reminding us of what, Paul, of what Mark has told us, what Paul's about to and what Mark has told us numerous times when uh, this topic has come up, and that is this. If Jesus believed it and Jesus talked about it, and if Paul wrote about it, it's probably something we ought to pay attention to as well. And so with that in mind, let's read about our real battle. Verses 11 and 12 says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Heavenly realms, it's another one of those threads that's being pulled together here all the way to completion. Paul referred to heavenly realms in chapter 1 of Ephesians. He talked about it in chapter 3 of Ephesians. It's not a new topic. He's been warning us about this all along and equipping us for what we're to do for this battle. See, it's impossible for us even right now in our day and age, aware of what we know of what's in the news and of our own struggles, we want to make this battle a personal thing. We want to put a face and we want to put a name to it. And it's difficult because these struggles and these challenges and these attacks and these frustrations that we have are really not just physical things, they're spiritual things. It's Satan doing everything he can to distract and discourage us up to the point when Jesus returns and his defeat is final. And so this battle is both in this dark world but also in the heavenly realms. Paul's telling us we really fight against the darkness. It's a darkness that many times is unseen. If you were here last week, you uh, got to hear a little bit from the Rogers family who were our our missions of the month, uh, missionaries serving in Southeast Asia. On Monday, Kirby came in and shared with our staff a little bit more about their work. I was able to outline some things. He said something that was both timely and insightful for me uh, about their work and about what we do as believers And he reminded us that Satan has really two modes with which he comes at us. Uh, He attacks us both overtly, but also covertly. And if you think about it, uh, you know, Kirby was saying uh, many times when you get overseas and you're in an environment different than the U.S., the, the attacks seem much more overt, much more obvious, just very much more right in front of your eye. But here in the States, most of the time, the way Satan chooses to attack us is covertly. Now, I'm not a military guy. 
but I know enough about covert ops from watching the news or playing video games or whatever it might be to understand a few things, right? What's the point of covert ops? They're surprised. See, covert ops are well thought out. They're well planned. They've thought of every possible scenario. And the whole point of a covert operation is that by the time they've engaged that enemy, it's simply too late for the enemy to be able to to respond. They either never see it coming or they see it too late. Isn't that the way Satan works in our lives too? It's rarely just this affront that just comes straight at us. There are times of special challenge, but most of the time it's simply a distraction. It's simply us getting into a routine. It's us getting lazy, getting comfortable, putting down our weaponry. And it's at that point when we're too far away from our defense that he swoops in for the attack. Covertly, secretly, deceptively. And so this morning, I want to do uh, basically what Paul does, which is spend just a little bit of time about the enemy and more time about the good news of our weaponry. But he does outline a few things that I think are important for us. So I want to give us just simply three characteristics about our enemy that hopefully remind us of who we're up against. First, our enemy is powerful. Do you look in the text and you see the words used against rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces? Those aren't weak words. Those aren't, those aren't things that are just simply overcome with a good effort. This is our enemy who is powerful and I think most importantly has not yet conceded. He may be defeated because of what Jesus did on the cross, but remember that word finally in the remaining time. Until Jesus returns, there is still a battle to be fought. And our enemy is powerful. But power itself is pretty neutral. It can be used for good or bad. And so the second characteristic of our enemy is simply this, that he is wicked. That our enemies that we face are wicked. Perhaps this quote is helpful. It says, if we hope to overcome our enemy, we shall need to bear in mind that they have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. Or maybe the words of Jesus from John chapter 10 where he describes our enemy as a thief and says simply, the thief comes to what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan's not a toy. He's not a weak enemy. He's not just some little thing sitting on my shoulder tempting me to eat more chocolate. He is an enemy who desires to destroy me, to destroy you, to distract me, to pull us away from our heavenly father. How does he do it? That's the third characteristic. He's cunning. If you look back in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against what? The devil's schemes. Some translations say wiles. Satan's work against us is a work of seduction, of deception, of enticement. It's rarely just one quick, decisive moment where we choose to sin, but instead it's just alluring. It's just a look over here, now take a step of this direction, now just a little bit farther, and just pulls us slowly through deception towards him. Or perhaps one of his best covert works is that he just simply convinces us that he's not there. Like, man, this stuff they're talking about at church is ridiculous. Seriously, are you going to believe it? Like, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. If you just solve your own problems, if you just make enough money, if you just get yourself in the right position, the bad stuff stops happening. 
C.S. Lewis said it this way in the screw tape letters. Our enemy, he is at his wiliest when he succeeds in persuading people that he does not exist. Maybe it's the word wiles in some of the translations that trips you up. Wiles, I'm old enough, it makes me think of that, that fated enemy of the roadrunner, Wiley Coyote, right? The guy with the unlimited Acme budget that will buy torpedoes and traps and dynamite and whatever. And every time you're like, this is not going to work. It never does. He's got no hope. He's got no chance, right? And so I look sometimes at, at uh, this type of a word and, and there's that temptation that Satan wants us to believe of. Like he's just as weak as that, but the truth is he's not. His weapons will work against us if we're not in Christ. When we try to do this on our own, he has enough to take us down. So maybe it's insightful to remember the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, talking to the persecuted church who understood this well when he said, your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's our battle. An enemy that wants to devour us, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so if that's our real battle, Paul wants us mindful and aware of that, being sober as we enter into this battle, going, if this is the real battle, then how on earth, you said I can stand strong under that. How exactly does that happen? And that's the the back half of this passage, starting in verse 13, where we understand our real weapons. Verse 13 says this, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So what are our real weapons? I don't know if you can remember back. It's getting increasingly difficult for me to remember my time in high school. Uh, But I had some professors that at times would say, Everything, of course, as a professor, I say in class is important, right? But if I say it twice, it probably means it's really important. And if I say it three times, it probably means what? That's going to be on the test, right? Well, here's Paul four times using the same word. Did you catch it? Stand. Stand. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm. So our first defense against our enemy is simply to stand on him, to stand on Christ. See, Paul's desire is that we have Christians who have stability, who are strong and who are stable, who aren't wobbly, who aren't weakened, who aren't barely holding it together, but who are strong against the attack of Satan. And here's what I love about what Paul says is he says that we can stand not just when we enter the battle, because a lot of people do that, but we'll be standing when the battle's over as well. That's the confidence we can have in our Jesus. Peter, in that same passage where he's describing our enemy as a roaring lion, follows it up with this statement to the church. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Galatians 5 says, stand firm, 
Philippians 4 says stand firm. Our passage in Ephesians four times says stand firm. So the question naturally begs itself, church, what are you standing on? Your own might and strength and ingenuity, the things you think will keep you stable, your possessions, your job, your identity, or are you simply standing on him? G.K. Chesterton said it this way, there is an infinity of angles at which one falls, but only one at which he stands. Your stability is not based on if you stand, but rather what you are standing on. Or maybe a little theology from Dr. Seuss today is insightful and his character, the Lorax, who said it this way, a tree falls the way it leans. Be careful which way you lean. You see, Satan's temptation to us is simply to get us to lean, to stop standing and just to to start to shuffle or slide a little bit off the stable rock. The words of that old hymn can't help but come to mind. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Satan's first temptation to us is simply to get us to stop standing on the strength of Christ. And so that's our first defense. Number two is this armor from him. So we not only stand on him, but we also have armor from him. And a couple things I want to say about that. We're not going to spend a great deal of time unpacking each of those pieces though we'll talk about them just briefly. But do you understand, do you notice in both times that he addresses this armor of God, that he uses a word before it, he says, put on the full armor of God. Not just pieces, not just the stuff you wanna wear, but the whole uniform, the whole armor so that you can stand. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to be a part of a father-son retreat here at the church called Modern Day Nights. I know many of the, the dads have been a part of something like that. And at one point, uh, we're there with our sixth grade boys and they lay out on a table all sorts of medieval weaponry. There's a sword, there's a helmet, there's a, a breastplate, there's a shield, there's all these things. Now, if you were a guessing person, what do you think every sixth grade boy goes for first? The sword, Yeah. And just like a sixth grade boy, we're kind of similar in that way, aren't we? That we're intrigued by like that sword at the end of the passage. Like, I want to pick that thing up. Like, I want to go into battle, right? And he says, Paul reminds us though, put on the full armor. Don't just pick up the sword and run out on the battlefield. Put on everything that I've given you. Stand on him, wear armor from him. And this armor is real stuff. Though you may not physically see it laying out on a table, it is very real for those of us that are in Christ. It's not a Halloween costume. It's not dress up. This is real stuff created and given to us so that we can stand strong. It starts with the girding of truth, the preparatory action taken before the, army is, before the armor is put on. If you think about Bible times and the robes often that guys would wear, the first thing they'd have to do is gather up those robes and cinch them with a belt around their waist so that they had mobility, so that they could move quickly and freely. And so underneath all of that armor is the truth, the truth that we stand on. Our feet stand on the gospel and our defense is faith. Our weapon, the word of truth. It says there's a gospel of peace And I love the gospel of peace mostly, you know why? Because Satan hates it. Because the gospel of peace, this declaration of the power of God puts us on the offensive. It's encouraging, isn't it? Hearing the good news breaking through as light in other places 
helps me be strong where I am. Think about the baptisms that we celebrate. Why do we put those pictures up? Why do we watch those during our services? Because when that happens, when the gospel of peace is declared, there's joy and there's freedom because we know another victory has been won for our side. Because when the gospel of truth is declared, it brings about light and peace and hope, the very things that Satan detests. It says we also have the shield of faith that puts out the flaming arrows of Satan. The flaming arrows, uh, flaming arrows of his accusations, of his temptations. See, this shield of faith lays hold of the power and promises of God in times of temptation, doubt, and depression. Because they'll come even for believers. There is nothing in this passage that's a promise. If you believe, nothing bad happens. We know better than that. In fact, we realize that some of our challenges in our faith are the moments that we can go back to with the most confidence on the other side, knowing that it wasn't us that stood up against that challenge, but it was the Lord that had that victory for us. And so we pick up that faith, and sometimes it is our only defense, it feels like, that it's the only thing we put up to shield ourselves against those arrows that seem to just rain down on us one after another after another as Satan just tries to tempt us and distract us and discourage us and depress us and put us in periods of doubt. And yet we have the confidence that this shield of faith can repel every single one. And it is true, we do have the sword, we do have the word. This word of truth that's used to fend off temptation, just like Jesus did in the wilderness. Remember, every time Satan came to him to tempt him, Jesus' response was always to give back to him the word of God, for which every time, I love, Satan had no answer, no response. It just stopped him. This word that's living and active is for us a weapon that we can use. Maybe contrasting it this way is helpful for us. One writer put it this way, the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We cannot win by resorting to the weapons our opponents wield, such as paranoia, conspiracy theories, propaganda, lies, and hatred. We're compelled to use superior arms to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So church, we have an option. We can engage in the battle with the same level of weaponry our opponent has and probably wields better than we do. Things like paranoia, propaganda, lies, and hatred. Or we can choose to put on the armor marked by words like truth and righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. So we stand on him, we have armor from him, and thirdly, we pray to him. I'm grateful to one of the professors at Ozark, Shane Wood, who last summer taught me, reminded me that prayer is in fact a weapon itself. It's not a weak, simple, not important thing. It is one of the ways we combat the enemy. Why would our student ministry invite us to go out and pick up the names of those headed to a conference and invite us to pray for them intentionally because those kids and those leaders are entering into a place where the spirit wants to do something and don't you think Satan will do everything he can to distract them? 
And yet we, hundreds of miles away, can fight that battle on their behalf. How? Through prayer. Through holding them up before the Father and asking that God would protect them and strengthen them, that his spirit, which is stronger than anything Satan wields, would move and stir in their hearts. And it's the same prayer we can pray for ourselves and for one another, isn't it? You see, prayer is actually the way I think we put this armor on and how we stand on him. It's the way that we're aware of our position when we talk with and listen to God and we have the ability to be reminded. And so it's though Paul is saying, as you put on the armor, put it on with prayer. As each piece goes on, pray about it. And when you do that, you'll be reminded of the armor that you have, of the God that is for you, and the Savior and the power that you can stand on. Notice again that uh, just as in verse 10, it was in the Lord and in his mighty power. Verse 18 now says that we pray how? In the spirit, in relationship with him, because as believers, he's living and active inside us. And two other words I'd like to point out about this prayer. One of them is all. Do you notice that it says, we pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Always keep on praying for all the saints. If I have a confession to make about my own prayer life, it's this, that it's not all for me, it's some. There's some things I'll pray about and there's some people I'll pray about and there are some circumstances that I'll pray about. And yet the instruction is, do you wanna have victory? Do you wanna stand strong? Then you pray about everything. And the other word in here that I wanna point out is the word alert that we're to stay alert. How do we stay alert? How do we not fall asleep? How do we not get lured into the temptations of Satan? We simply stay alert. And how do we do that? Paul says through prayer. It reminds me when I think of being alert and praying of Jesus's instructions to the disciples in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, when he says to them, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. If our enemy is a spiritual one, and if this battle is a spiritual one, then our weak bodies don't have the strength on their own to stand, but with him and in him, we can have confidence and strength. Church, here's the truth. When we are in Christ, our weapons are greater than our enemy. When we are in Christ, there is no weapon that he can wield against us that we need to fear because Jesus has outfitted us completely with an army that has no hole, that has no weakness, that has no tricky spot, that if you just stand the wrong way, he can still get you. If you stand on him, armored from him, praying to him, Satan's flaming arrows of attacks won't hit the mark. And here's the beauty about that truth, that it's not just for some of us, but it's for all of us. Now, I don't know if this is your first week as a part of the Repurpose series, or maybe you've been here for all of them, but each week we've seen and heard powerful testimonies about what God is doing, and I'm grateful for our creative arts team for the way they've put those together and the intentionality that they even said to me in a meeting this week to make those stories, though they are incredible stories of what has happened in us, they're really incredible stories about what God is doing. 
The reason I'm encouraged by those stories is because they remind me that we worship a God who is greater than any challenge we could face that can repurpose any story. And so I wonder if someone had asked you, would you be willing to come and sit in one of these seats and tell your repurposed story, what would it be? What is it that Jesus has repurposed in your own life to give you a new hope and a new purpose? Because here's the truth, church, we all have one. And if you don't yet have a repurposed story, then perhaps today it's time for you to ask yourself, why not? What is it, what is the temptation, the struggle, whatever it might be that you've clung on to instead of simply letting go and standing on him, armoring from him and praying to him? And so here's what I wanna do for us as a church as we close our time with the repurpose series. I wanna offer for us a repurposed statement that doesn't exclude any who are in Christ who have said yes to Jesus. And I hope uh, that as I read this over us, that for those of us who are in Christ, it is simply an encouragement and a reminder that we have a great God. And if it doesn't strike home yet, if it isn't true for you, may the words of this cause you to wanna respond. So Paul said to stand four times, so I'm gonna invite you right now to stand. And together, listen as I read this repurposed statement for us all. Our name is Christ Church. We once were sinners dead in our transgressions and sins, but God rescued us. He took our sin and brokenness and repurposed us into his workmanship, a people created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now we are dearly loved children rooted and established in love, sealed by and filled with the Holy Spirit, protected by the full armor of God, living lives of love, making the most of every opportunity so that we may be strong and may stand our ground, all for the praise of his glory. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and all Christ's church said, amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com